Well, amen. Thank you, Children's Choir. Thank you, Joyce. Uh, thank you for those of you that work with our Children's Choir, Marla and others. Um, isn't that a blessing? See? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one more time, for sure. I am so thankful that we're helping our children hide God's Word in their hearts, not just uh, in the lessons that are taught, but even in the songs that they sing. How true that we should be thankful for God's love that He's given us, that each and every one of us, even as adults, are children. We're children of the King if we know Him, and so I'm, I'm so thankful for that. Uh, in fact, I did not plan that. Uh, I did not talk to anyone in our children's choir about that, but we are actually talking about that love today. So that's kind of a neat thing that the Lord put together for us. Uh, we'll be in 1 John chapter 4 today. 1 John chapter 4. We are going to finish the book of 1 John before Christmas. Believe it or not, it is going to happen, okay? But we're working through the book of 1 John, and we are starting in verse uh, 7 this morning, reading through verse 21, all of the, the rest of chapter 4 together today. And we are talking about that very idea, the necessity of love, that I don't care who you are, I don't care where you come from, I don't care how young or how old, how big or how strong, we all need love. We don't just want it, we need it. And uh, a story is, is often taught and told in some intro to psychology classes today, uh, basic psychology, that I think demonstrates this truth. There was uh, a South American orphanage and a psychologist there by the name of Renee Spitz who did a study. Uh, there was a tragic situation in that orphanage. There were 97 children, 97 uh, that were three months to only three years old. And uh, in this orphanage, uh, unfortunately, these children were deprived of emotional and physical uh, contact with others. They were deprived of love because there was not enough staff to adequately care for these little ones. There were so many that they couldn't meet all of the needs. And so what they decided was, we will focus on the biological needs of these kids. We will make sure that they are fed. We will make sure that they have some health care. We will make sure that their diapers are changed and that they get enough sleep. We will make sure these things happen. But we cannot provide the nurture that they need. Uh, we can't do that. And so uh, these children, many of them were not held. They were not coddled. They were not uh, even talked to oftentimes because there was other things to be done. There was business to be done for the other children. And so they didn't get the love that they would normally receive from a mother. About a year in, 27 of them, almost one-third, had died. Why? wasn't from lack of food. wasn't that they weren't getting enough rest. They died of a lack of touch and emotional nurture. They died from a lack of love. In the second year, seven more children died, and by the end of the three years, only 21 of the original 97 had survived. And those that did often had major psychological trauma that they lived with the rest of their lives. Why? Because, friends, we need love. We are built for it. And so as we look at 1 John chapter 4, I want us to look at the necessity of love this morning. Go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21, we'll be reading together. The Word of the Lord says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, 
Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy God, we thank you even now as we stop this morning to hear your word. God, we thank you that it is alive and active that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and that you use it even now to this very day to convict us, to mold us into your image, to change us into the likeness of your Son, and to save us. And so, God, as um, we hear that, God, we pray that we would be able to lay aside distractions and desires and and schedules, Um, Father, that we would be able to meet with you in this time. God, we thank you that you love us and that you love us best. May we be reminded of that truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And so the main idea this morning is that perfect love must be confessed and trusted. Perfect love must be confessed and trusted. If we are going to be the people that God calls us to be as His children, if we're going to walk through life in an unwavering kind of way where we're not thrown back and forth by our circumstances and we're not thrown back and forth by different doctrines and different teachings, we have to rest in God's love for us. We must confess it. And we must trust it. We'll unpack that together this morning. You see, our society, I think, is so confused when it comes to this idea of love. If you ask, I believe, five different people, I believe you will oftentimes get five different answers as to what love is. Some people may tell you that love is an emotion. And that's why people fall out of love, because emotions come and emotions go. Others might tell you that that love is an action of some sort, that we have to act out and we have to demonstrate over and over and over again. Then there are still others who would say, well, no, love is not either of those things. Love is actually a choice. And I can tell you because I love people, but I don't necessarily like those people. We've all heard that phrase before, right? And then I believe there are those that would say, uh, perhaps in, in psychological circles or in scientific circles, that love is actually a composition of chemicals within the brain. And as long as those chemicals are present then there are loving feelings that accompany that. But if those chemicals are removed, then love is not present. And then last but not least, uh, something that we've all heard many times, love is some sort of spiritual force, right? It's the force out there that binds us all together. What is love? Um, I want to give you a definition this morning because while I would say this, I don't believe all of those references and all those definitions that I just shared are completely and totally wrong. I would also say this, at the very best, they're incomplete. 
At the very best, they don't capture the fullness of the love that God desires we see and behold in Jesus Christ. And so I want to give you a, a simple definition of love uh, that, that I came up with, and I don't say that it's the end-all, be-all, but I, I believe it's something that is worth reflecting on. You see, because love is from God, love is a God-granted compassion. Love is a God-granted compassion that causes us to care for others and delight in others regardless of their performance. It's a God-granted compassion that causes us to care for others and delight in others regardless of their performance because God loves us in spite of our performance. Thank the Lord for that. Thank God for that. But I want us to look this morning, because I think even as we begin to reflect on this idea that God is the author and he is the example to us of perfect love, the question quickly becomes... Is God really that? Is God really perfect love for us today? Let's look again at verses 7 through 12 for just a moment. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I want to stop there for a moment. And so John makes this declaration that I believe is so important. He actually repeats it a little later in the passage. Three words. God is love. What does that mean? What does it mean to say that God is love? If that is true, is it also true to, to say it the other way? Love is God? If someone were to ask you this morning, is love God, what would you say to them? The answer is no. Love is not God. Love is not uh, just some uh, force. God, excuse me. God is not just some force or some emotion. God is a person, right? God is three in one. He is um, a living and, and dynamic uh, person, And so we must be certain and sure to not mix up the two. Love is not God, but God is love. How is that true? I believe that it helps us when we think of this idea of holiness. You see, there's also been another three letter, or excuse me, three word phrase that's found throughout the Bible. God is holy, right? As we look at that, we would not say holiness is God. We wouldn't say holiness is God. What are we saying then when we say that God is holy? Well, I believe what we're saying is that when I look at God, something that can help me understand who he is is to look at his nature, look at his characteristics through the lens of holiness. Holiness is, is simply this idea that God is set apart, that he's not like us, that he's different from us. And so when I look at God's attributes, I look at it and I understand this. We can be good in some ways, but we are far from good in many other ways, right? But however, God is set apart. He's good in a totally different way. He's good and he is perfectly good all the time, always, right? God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. That's not like us. He's different. His, his goodness is holy. When I look at God's power, there are many ways that we can express the power of human beings on this planet. There are many ways that we can do that through technology or even through warfare and through all these different ways that we can try to assert our power. But all the power in all the world doesn't measure up to God's power. God's power is different. 
It's set apart. It's holy. And so God's power is holy. God's goodness is holy. God's righteousness is holy. He is set apart and different in all that he does because he is so far, so high above us. In the same way, I would say this, to say that God is love is to say that in all of his characteristics, we need to look at him through the lens of love. That's important. I think when we think about God's grace to us, we would say, yes, I believe that God is loving in his grace. But here's a question I want to ask you today, Christian. What about his wrath? Is God loving in his wrath? The answer, the biblical answer is yes, because God is love. And so when I look at God, the way that he displays his glory, the way that he displays his perfections, the way that he works out his will in the world, it is always good and it is always loving. God is loving in his knowledge. God is loving in his power and he is loving in his righteousness because God is love. These verses tell us then that God's love is best displayed through this idea of propitiation. What does that mean? That God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a theological term that has uh, the idea of appeasing wrath appeasing wrath and so that God rightfully lovingly has a holy wrath against sin that because he is good he will deal with sin you see in fact if God chooses not to deal with sin that actually um, makes him no good because God is good he chooses he always will have wrath towards sin and because he does that as he does that he allowed his son in his goodness and in his grace and in his mercy to us to be the propitiation for our sins, to bear the wrath that you and I deserve. And so Jesus substituted himself on the cross. And these verses tell us this, God's love is best pictured in God's choosing to die for you and for me. So this morning, I just want to invite us as we reflect on God's perfect love, I just want to ask you to stop with me this morning and to stare at the cross. To stop and to stare at the cross together. I want to invite us to go back to Calvary and and go back to a particular person that I I think is a a fascinating account uh, around the cross. It's the account of the Roman centurion. Many of us have heard the story. Many of us are familiar with him. But the Roman centurion, I think in many ways, is actually a haunting account of a sinner who suddenly recognizes God's perfect love towards him. He's there. The centurion was likely a man who was directly responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. I got news for you, friends. Guess what? You and I are directly responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. It is our sins that held him there. Maybe we didn't nail him to the tree, but you can rest assured we are much like the centurion. And he may have even helped nail Jesus to the cross. You see, I think he's there and he he sees Jesus bleeding. He watches the crowd laugh and mock Jesus, he decides to perhaps join some friends and cast some lots for Jesus' clothing to help pass the time because the the truth may be this, that he's done this before. As a Roman centurion, crucifixion was semi-common across the Roman Empire, and so perhaps he's witnessed this before. Perhaps he's even uh, done this. And so in some ways, it's just another day on the job. He's just going through the motions. But as time passes, he notices this man is different. You see, as Jesus writhes in pain, the centurion begins to watch him a little more closely, this bloodied and beaten Nazarene. As he gasps for breath between the insults and the torment of the crowd, he's saying something. 
What's he saying? So the centurion begins to listen in. He begins to move a little closer. And he listens to Jesus and he hears something like this. He hears him praying for him. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Well, as you can imagine, this grabs his attention. So he listens a little more closely and he listens another time as as this man from Nazarene cries out for something to drink. You see, he's lost so many fluids. He's been beaten so severely that his tongue is cleaving to the roof of his mouth. It's hard for him to swallow, and he cries out. He says, please give me something to drink. And even as he does that, there's not a hint of anger in his voice at the crowd as they offer him bitter wine. He later hears this carpenter who's dying in excruciating pain comfort a known criminal. And he tells him, surely today you will be with me in paradise. The centurion is no longer just doing a job. You see, he begins to ask himself, what man is this? Who does this? Who's, who is this man? He's drawn into the wonder of what he's witnessing. Who prays for their tormentors to be forgiven? Who harbors no hatred for his mockers? Who cares for and comforts a stranger as they also stare death in the face? Suddenly, the reality pierces the centurion's soul. He thinks, what have I done? He can't hold in the weight of this truth any longer, and he shrieks, truly, this man was the Son of God. And in that moment, the crowd stops perhaps and stares at this centurion. How could he say that, this Roman guard? But they know, Luke tells us, you see, the crowd actually left doing this. The crowd left beating their breasts because they too knew it was undeniable. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Why was it so clear then? Why is it so clear now when we stop and we think about God taking our ugliness, God taking our sin and doing so in perfect love? The answer is because no one can love like that. That's the answer. Only God can love that way. How is it that God is perfect love? Well, God is patient and God is kind. You see, God does not envy or boast. God is not arrogant or rude. God is not self-seeking. Even as he pursues and works out his will in the world, he is so good and so loving and so right that his will being worked out is what's best for us. God is not easily angered. He endures and he waits patiently for sinful rebels to return to him. God keeps no record of wrongs, especially for his children. God does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but he rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Friends, listen, God never fails. Do you believe that this morning? That last sentence is so crucial for us to live the Christian life that we're called to live. God's love for us will never fail. If we don't know and believe that, then we will end up much like Um, John describes, we will live in fear, and and it will be clear that we haven't been perfected in God's love because perfect love casts out fear. If we don't have faith that God never fails, we will fail to live by faith. So John looks at this, and he says very simply, because God is love, there's only one possible outcome for God's children. If God really is this good, if God really is this perfect example of love, then they will without exception, live lives of love. And so if we choose not to live in loving ways, then guess what? 
it demonstrates perhaps we don't know God. If we don't love, we don't know Him. How do people know that we love them? How do people know we love them? I believe there's really just two big ways, two major ways. Number one, we say it, right? We look someone in the eye and we let them know, I love you. You matter to me. You're valuable to me. You're worth my time and energy and effort. I love you. And so we say those things. But then secondly, we also need to do what? We need to do it. We need to act it out. So we have to perform it. As John calls us, we shouldn't just uh, love with words. We're called to love with deeds as well. And so we have this very clear command to love one another, to love those around us. This should work out into our lives in so many areas, uh, especially here as brothers and sisters of, of, of Jesus Christ. But I just want to ask this this morning. Um, I think sometimes as men, we can struggle with this idea of love, perhaps a little more than our female counterparts. We are, in fact, after all, commanded, husbands, love your wives. Why are, are we doing that? Why is that command given? I think it's something that we need to reflect on. You know, I, I think back in my own marriage, um, how did Tara, how did I convince her to marry me? It took three years, first of all. Um, I, I met her in ninth grade, and uh, we were high school sweethearts by senior year, but it took me three years to convince her that I was even worth going on a date with, right? But over time, how did I convince her to do that? I convinced her because I told her. I used my mouth to say, I think you're beautiful. I think you're wonderful. I want to be with you. I think you're special and set apart and different. I communicated to her that I loved her, but then I also did this. I performed that. I demonstrated that love over and over and over again through different actions. Husbands, we are still called to do those things today. Does your wife know that you love her? Do you say it? Do you do things to demonstrate it? Fathers, do your children know that you love them because you say it and because you take the time to demonstrate it? Christians, do the people in the pews next to you know you love them? Do they know? We are called. This is not just some nice idea. This is who we are called to be. I want to look at two natural fruits of knowing God's love uh, that come out in his children. Two natural fruits, two ways that as we continue to reflect and live out God's love, two things that will absolutely always happen. Um, the first is in verses 13 through 15. Look at these with me, verses 13 through 15. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Did you catch it? You see, we're to testify and we're to confess. We are to testify. And we are to confess. God's children will confess perfect love. If we have experienced this perfect love, the reality is there's no way we're going to hold it inside. If we know God's infinite goodness towards us, at some point it will fill up our cup and it will overflow into other areas of our lives. So how do we know this? How do we know this? Well, firstly, it is clearly a function of the Holy Spirit. You see how John starts in that passage? He says he has given us of his Spirit Guess one of the roles of the Spirit. Guess what that is? It is to confess and testify to who Jesus Christ is. That's one of the functions of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He convicts us of sin, and he testifies to the world of who Jesus is. And so if that Spirit is in me, guess what? It's going to come out. 
The Spirit is going to speak of who Jesus is in my life. It's going to work its way out. You know, I think in many ways, refusing to speak of God, refusing to speak of His great love for us, is a sign that we may not know Him or we may not love Him. Instead, it's a sign that we love ourselves. It's a sign that we love our peer groups more, or we love our careers more, or we love certain forms of entertainment more than Jesus Christ. And so I'm not going to speak out about him because if I do, it may cost me those things. But for those of us who know Jesus, for those of us who do love him, the Spirit will testify in us. He will help us speak of Jesus as we are called you see, I sit in a, a discipleship group with some men. I have the privilege of doing that, and I'm so thankful for that. It's a small group of guys, and we have some accountability. And one of the things that we do in that group is we hold each other accountable to have gospel conversations, to talk with people out there about who Jesus is. And one of the, the things that arises every time as we talk about that, we, I, I like to ask, well, what is it easy? You know what the answer is every time? No, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. Why? Because when I speak of Jesus, I believe this. It's I'm entering into the battle. And I don't care how brave a warrior may be. I don't care how strong he is or how tough he is. Every warrior experiences some nerves before he goes into the battle. Why? Because something is at stake. Something is at stake. And in the same way, every player, before he enters onto the football field or the basketball court or the soccer field or whatever it may be, there are some nerves in the locker room before game time. Why? Because something's at stake. Someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. And in the same way, friends, when we choose to share the gospel and confess and testify of who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives, something is at stake. It's eternity. It's heaven and hell. And we are choosing, will I love this world more? Because it might cost me to speak about Jesus. Or will I love him more? We choose to enter the battle because he's worth it. He's worthy. You see, I choose to tell people that I love Tara because I believe she's worth it. I'm thankful for my wife. I don't deserve my wife. She is beautiful. She's patient with me. She is kind. She is gentle. She is an incredible mother to our children. And I tell people of her because she's worth it. Because I believe that she really is that good. And in the same way, friends, as good as my wife is, Jesus is so much better. Do I take the time to speak of him? Do I take the time to tell other people how good he is? We must consider, you see, God's children confess perfect love and And it's not always under compulsion. I guess it's my duty as a Christian. I have to do this. You see, friends, it's actually a privilege to invite perishing people into a relationship with their Savior. It's a joy. And we should see it as such. We should be thankful that we have the opportunity to testify, that we have the chance to confess because He saved us. So God's children will confess perfect love. What else happens in the life of God's children? God's children trust perfect love. God's children trust perfect love. Look at verses 16 through 21. We're not going to read all of these. In fact, we're just going to really focus on 16. It says this, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It's an important phrase in that passage. John says, we have come to know and to believe. 
And what John is communicating with those words, we have come to know, is not that we have some sort of head knowledge. It's not that we just have some some facts up here about who Jesus is and what he did for us. Although those things are necessary, and he confirms that earlier in the book of 1 John. But what he's saying here is, we have come to know it because we've experienced it. I've come to know the love that Jesus has for me because I walked with Jesus. I tasted it. And now that I know how good he is, I trust it. In the same way, as God's children, we are called to trust his character, to trust his faithfulness to us. As he reveals himself in our lives, we see that he is good. We taste that he is good. We taste that he is trustworthy. And so I choose to know it and believe it over and over and over again as I walk through life and as my circumstances change. You see, I moved from North Mississippi to South Mississippi as a high school boy. And in reality, a move is not that big of a deal. Uh, it's, it's a big deal, though, to a teenage boy. And for me, at that time in my life, I wrestled greatly with that move because I was uprooted and, and moved and transplanted out of a church that I love and a youth ministry that, that I loved. I was transplanted out of a school that I loved and some friends that I loved. And I was angry. I was angry at God for allowing this to happen to me. And I was angry at my father because he was the one, his job is what caused us to move. And so I rebelled. I ran from God for about three years in my high school years. And I searched for some sort of happiness, some sort of fulfillment apart from Jesus. And as you well know, I found there is no happiness and fulfillment apart from Jesus. I made some horrible mistakes and I hurt my relationship with my father deeply. But after about three years, I kind of reached a difficult point. I yielded to God. I learned that I couldn't satisfy myself. And I came to him and I repented. I said, Lord, I'm sorry for the things that I've done. I'm sorry for my selfishness and the way that I've lived. God, please help me in this moment now to to begin following you. And he took me back. I hadn't lost my salvation, but in spite of my rebellion, God used that move greatly in my life. You see, the whole time I'm kicking and screaming, right? But here's how good God is. God, in that move, used that to call me into ministry. It was my senior year of high school that I received my call to ministry. After that, I also understood this. It was also through that move and placing me in that town and in the school that I went to that I met my wife, Tara. And had it not been for that move, it's likely those things may not have happened. Because here's what I learned. I came to know and believe the love God has for me. Before I moved... I knew that God was good, and I knew that he loved me. But friends, after I moved, I knew that God was good. I knew that he loved me, and he loved me oftentimes in spite of myself, in spite of my rebellion. And so I came to know and believe this. We're called to love people. We're called to to cherish them and treasure them. But people come and people go. But friends, the Lord remains forever. He's the one who can carry you through life. He alone will walk with you through the highs and lows. And so I learned a very hard lesson as a young man. But I just want us to see this 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 morning. I want us to see that, that God is so good that he wrestles with us to help our hearts turn back to him. God's so good that he wrestles with us. In Genesis chapter, I believe it's 32, there's a story where Jacob, father 
of Israel wrestles with the Lord physically. He wrestles with the angel of God. And it, it takes all night. They wrestle all night long. I just want to ask you this question. Could God have defeated Jacob that night? Absolutely. The answer is definitely, without question. God could have done that. God could have uh, killed him on the spot. God could have also said, how dare you try to wrestle with me and cast him out. God could have done a great many things in that moment, but God chose to wrestle with Jacob and to wrestle with him all night long. Why? Because that physical wrestling represented a spiritual wrestling. It represented that Jacob was trusting the Lord and returning to his brother Esau, who had sworn to kill him. You see, Jacob had stolen his brother's blessing. He had stolen his brother's birthright. And he was scared to return. You see, what Jacob wanted was certainty. He wanted security. Lord, I'll go, but I want your blessing. And that's what happens. What happens? The Lord touches his hip. He just displays. He just reminds Jacob, I've been wrestling with you, Jacob, but I'm in control. And so I'm going to touch your hip. And he wounds him. Even as he wounds him, he loves him. He's helping Jacob see he's not in control. And he's helping Jacob see this. Jacob grabs on and he says something like this. Lord, please bless me. I can't let go until you bless me. I need security. I need a guarantee. And what God is teaching Jacob as he wrestles him is very simply this. I will bless you, Jacob, but here's what I want you to know. I'm the blessing. What you need is me. What you need as you go back to see your brother is my presence. What you need is my love and grace in your life. I am the ultimate blessing. Do you believe that this morning? You see, God was so kind to me to wrestle with me as a 16, 17, and 18-year-old boy. God loves us so much that he wrestles with us to turn our hearts to help us be inclined to love him and see him as we should. As we prepare to wrap up today, I just want us to look at Job for just a moment. Job, who walked through some of the worst difficulties that life could possibly throw his way, in, verse, in chapter 13, verse 15, he says this. Listen to this. He says, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. How could Job say that? How could Job say, Though he slay me, though he kills me, I will hope in Jesus. The way that he could say that, friends, I believe, is that he'd already wrestled. And he'd come to a place where he knew And he believed the love that God had for him. He trusted God. Whatever was happening, I'm going to trust Jesus. Whatever's happening, I'm going to trust God. Because at the end of the day, here's the the other choice. Here's the other option. I can hope in the things that have been taken from me. Children killed. Health gone. Fortunes lost. A wife that says, curse God and die. And those things being taken from him, Job already knew, I can't place my hope there. They're just temporary. Where will I turn? You see, though he slay me, I will hope in him. I trust, I know, I believe that he is good. And even though I can't see it in this moment, he's going to work it out. You see, today, friends, you and I are invited to quit wrestling and start resting. We're invited to embrace the perfect love of God that he has for you, the perfect love of God that he has for me, the perfect love of God that he has displayed in his son, Jesus Christ.
And friends, it is enough. It is enough time and time and time again. And so I just want to close this morning by asking you to look. Look up. Look at the propitiation of Jesus Christ for you. Don't look around. Don't look at the distractions. Don't look at the wind and the waves. Look to Jesus. Look up, child, and know the love of God this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you so much for the love of Jesus Christ. Lord, that you would send your son to die in our place. God, there are no words to express the death that we owe. Father, we thank you that you wrestled.